This podcast is part of NMIKI's Indigenous Innovator Series, in which we profile Indigenous leaders, activists, artists, entrepreneurs, and others to better understand the challenges and opportunities that Indigenous people face today in Canada. This is Jordan Rennick from NMIKI. Today on the podcast, I'm talking about Indigenous technology and economic opportunity with Denise Williams. Denise is the Executive Director of the First Nations Technology Council, or FNTC, here in British Columbia. She is from the Cowichan tribes of the Coast Salish Nation in mid-Vancouver Island. Denise is also a graduate of the Executive MBA program in Aboriginal Business and Leadership from the Beattie School of Business at Simon Fraser University. On the podcast today, Denise shares her expertise and her understanding of the economic opportunity facing Indigenous peoples in terms of technological development in BC. We also talk about some of the obstacles and difficulties that our communities face in fully taking advantage of these opportunities. Later on in the show, I'll be joined by Lydia Prince, a Dequette and Creed technologist who is one of the first uh, students through the FNTC's growing program, Bridging to Technology. Lydia also happens to be Animiki's newest intern. Lydia and I got the chance to talk about the Bridging to Technology program in depth and to talk specifically about what she got out of it. So stay tuned for that. I'm recording today's podcast on the traditional territories of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples of the Coast Salish Nation, specifically the Songhees and Esquimalt First Nations. My guests on the podcast today are calling in from Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh traditional territories in Vancouver. So welcome, Denise. It's nice to have you here on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. So before we really get into um, kind of the heart of the interview, can you tell our audience a little bit about uh, the mission of the FNTC and the kinds of initiatives that you guys undertake? Yeah, absolutely. The First Nations Technology Council has uh, been had, had its mandate since 2002, um, but what was really in the works um, all throughout the 1990s, uh, First Nations chiefs from across British Columbia um, had been coming together talking about how technology um, will play a role in, in the development and the growth of our communities and uh, trying to think about, you know, 10, 20, 30 years in the future, where will, will those intersections be between uh, Indigenous communities and people and digital and connected technologies? Um, you know, technology changes fast. Our First Nations communities um, have also grown and, and been shaped in a lot of different ways, even since 2002. Uh, so we are still, um, you know, doing the same kind of work, even in 2017, trying to understand um, where are those places that technology is playing a role in our communities and how do we ensure um, that we are working alongside the provincial federal governments, industry, academia, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and all and, and all groups, you know, even across Canada, um, to ensure that the right investments are being made uh, today into digital and connected technologies and uh, that we're, we're aligning so that all of the right resources and capacities um, can be uh, put together to ensure First Nations communities and people um, not only have access, but have the capacity to leverage that access. Right. And you've been with uh, the FNTC for a little while now. Can you tell us how you got started there? You know, I think that what ended up happening really was, um, and I've said this before, I don't know if I chose the Technology Council and technology or if it chose me, but, um, you know, it, it really just uh, was, was uh, just a happy 
kind of alignment. I was in a good place in my career to make make a make a change, and I am very committed to working in, in nonprofits. Um, and and this just was the perfect place to be. I thought I'd come for a couple of years and see what I could do um, in building Project Raven, which was a, a project that uh, was a four year long project with uh, the Skills and Partnership Fund. And um, you know, after being involved in that project, I realized that. Uh, you know, there, there's just so much work to be done and I, I'm so privileged to be a part of it. And uh, yeah, I, I'm still here uh, all that time <laughs> later. <laughs> awesome. So like you said before, the, the technology economy and industries move really fast. And we know that here at Animiki as well. Um, but there's also huge changes predicted to come to the technology economy in BC over the next, you know, five years, 10 years, and, and even further into the future. Um, can you take us through some of the projections that you've seen? What kinds of changes um, do you think we can expect as technologists in BC? Yeah, I've I've been um, really fortunate to uh, be part of a couple of projects at the Vancouver Economic Commission and uh, the BC Innovation Council uh, led over the last uh, year, year and a half around, um, it, it was a labor market project uh, trying to better understand exactly your question you know what does the what does the technology sector uh technology innovation sector look like here in bc and um what what's it going to look like in the future and how do we how do we plan for that and um i I think what we what we know what i've seen in the reports and certainly what's been discussed you know around the table um people from government and industry i think all agree that um, the technology sector in British Columbia is only going to see exponential growth. Um, so I think, you know, a, certainly a hub in Canada, um, but even uh, globally, I think uh, Vancouver, British Columbia is going to become an even more desirable place um, for tech businesses to move and for innovation to come out of. Um, you know, there's a few factors, you know, what's what's going on um, in the United States and the Trump presidency, uh, you know, you see, um, and, and we anticipate to see more movement um, from the tech sector in you know, Silicon Valley and uh, San Francisco and places like that. There's a lot of um, effort being made to have uh, Canadians move back uh, to Vancouver as the technology sector grows. Um, and that's because uh, there's going to be such a demand um, for jobs and, um, you know, especially to fill those more highly skilled positions that uh, we, there's just not enough people ready, um, you know, to, to occupy those positions. So um, even if even if we Im- improved um, our immigration uh, laws, even if uh, you know we upped the number of seats in post-secondary to ensure that uh, we were you know really uh, leveraging our academic institutions to ensure you know we've got the best talent coming out of there, um, it, it's still not enough. There's there's still a really big gap, and so part of um, part of the work that that labor market project undertook was to explore what where are the untapped talent pools. And um, certainly the, the most underrepresented individuals in the sector um, are women, people with disabilities, and Indigenous people. Um, so that's, that's where I see the First Nations Technology Council 
uh, playing a role. Uh, that's where we're trying to coordinate is as we see um, across um, different occupations, um, literally thousands of jobs required between now and 2020, uh, we've been able to work with the province to map out where are those jobs, what kind of skills are required, um, you know, what are the salaries, where are they going to be located, all that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, what I can say is it's, we're only going to see more growth. Um, there's a demand now, there's going to be a, a larger demand to 2020. Um, and it's, it's an incredible opportunity for Indigenous people to um, start influencing the sector and, and occupying those spaces. And so what kind of work or investments need to be made um, for Indigenous people to become more represented in the industries? Um, we're one of the most underrepresented groups, as you said. What kinds of you know, training programs, whatever, needs to be put in place uh, for us to be more represented? I think that the, the single biggest factor, most critical factor at the moment is connectivity. Um, you know, we, the Technology Council, we've been uh, developing and implementing and executing um, great digital skills development programming for the last five years. Um, and, and that's great for those First Nations communities that can access um, our programming that have infrastructure in place, that have hardware in place, um, you know, that have a computer lab, that uh, there's last mile connectivity or first mile connectivity to First Nations homes. Um, you know, that's, that's where the largest uh, impact is um, in skills development training. Um, but that's not the majority of First Nations communities. So um, still, Today, there is uh, a very serious problem, I would say, um, in the way that we are coordinating um, to ensure that all First Nations have equitable, affordable access um, to the internet and to mobile services. Um, without that, uh, you know, I've been in that in that position, but for many people in Vancouver or in or in lower um, the lower half of the province, um, it, it's almost impossible to know what it would be like, you know, to have um, incredibly slow or no internet access. So um, the the one thing that needs to be invested in to ensure that Indigenous people have access to these types of programs and opportunities is that they have. Um, the basic the basic infrastructure provision and it's not necessarily um, you know the, the number is somewhere around I think 250 million to connect all First Nations communities in BC to high-speed um, internet uh, and it's not necessarily that infrastructure dollar that's the problem it's the long-term operating cost um, that's the challenge and so uh, you know I know that between the provincial government and the federal government and others, there's a lot of work being done to try to understand uh, how we make the operating cost um, more sustainable. But as you can imagine, you know, if you have a fiber connection to uh, a remote First Nations community in Northern BC, that might cost millions of dollars to, to put in. Um, but like I say, the real challenge is in some of those cases, you know, you have three to 500 people living in that community, 
um, sharing a fiber line, which ends up looking something like $10,000 a month to be a subscriber to that line. So who absorbs that cost? And uh, I would say today the single most critical issue is that that hasn't been solved. Right. So do you think that that's something we should be looking to, you know, provincial governments to federal governments? Is that something nations should be thinking about individually? Yeah, absolutely. One of the uh, one of the big pieces of work that the Technology Council is going to undertake this year um, is to uh, start gathering the connectivity data on at a provincial level, um, getting real time data in First Nations communities on what upload and download speeds um, actually look like, uh, because that's a bit different um, than what a database showing what they should have uh, looks like. So I think the the First Nations Technology Council plays an important role in um, getting the resources to compile that data and to triangulate those databases um, so that we have a solid, you know, quantifiable argument about exactly what's needed. Um, because I think you're absolutely right. I think that um, that's something, uh, this issue is, is, is one that's going to take, um, you know, a serious level of collaboration um, and partnership to know from each level of government and at the First Nations level, how do we... Um, how do we coordinate our efforts and our resources um, to make this work? Uh, I think that because of the, just the sheer diversity of First Nations communities in BC uh, and, and the geographical uh, realities, there's, there's going to need to be several solutions. You know, there isn't, there isn't just one. And so, um, and you know, like I've often said, it's not necessarily technology that's the, pro- the problem or the challenge. I think the technology exists. Um, you know, it, it's a matter of, um, you know, like I say, coordinating efforts and getting the right people, you know, in the circle, um, ready to, to know what, what challenge to tackle. You know, everyone's got different information um, at the moment. So, yeah, I, I, think that, I think that you're absolutely right. I think we, we all play a role um, in the council. We see ourselves as being the conveners. Miki is proud to work on Coast Salish territory in Victoria, but our clients and our podcast guests come from all around Turtle Island. If you know an Indigenous innovator who you think we should profile for a blog piece or a podcast, you can reach out to us at the email address info at find us at our website, or you can track us down through any of our social channels, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. So, um, for people who, who don't necessarily know, and you did talk about this a little bit, but can you talk about some of the uh, obstacles or, or disadvantages nations, particularly in northern BC, face in just accessing the internet? Yeah, some some of the obstacles, you know, are uh, is just the location that they they sit in geographically. So um, fiber can travel you know, a few different ways. It's, it's either, um, you know, underground or it's aerial fiber along um, hydro lines or, you know, there's subsea fiber. Um, there's different ways uh, that, that a solution can be, can be met for, for First Nations communities. Um, 
However, you know, in some cases, like I say, it's incredibly expensive or, you know, it's going to take, it's going to take a long time. Um, there's all kinds of questions about uh, who owns it, who operates it. Um, and then, like I mentioned, the, the long-term operating and maintenance cost. Um, so in, in other provinces in Canada, uh, you know, where the terrain is a little bit more um, flat and in some cases there's large treaty nations. Um, so those governments, um, you know, being, being, being larger and, um, you know, just as a large nation, um, more well-resourced or in some cases just more capacity, just sheer number of people there, um, you know, it, it, it takes a different shape, you know, um, access to the internet just uh, is a bit more doable. So in British Columbia, it's the, um, you know, how, how far apart our nations are, um, where they're situated, um, and then, you know, just, just kind of the, the disjointed um, nature in which um, each of them uh, are given opportunity to connect into the backbone. So I think there's a lot of confusion amongst uh, First Nations communities in BC as to, you know, what's happening with connectivity. How do I get involved? How do I improve my own connection? What is my connect? What do I need even in my community to do the type of work that I that I need to do? Um, so yeah, there, there's a number of obstacles, um, but I'd say one of the largest ones is um, yeah, just the. Just the just the sheer number of First Nation communities and where they are. Right. So I want to talk a little bit more about um, digital skills, because because like you mentioned at the start, the the economy is changing. We're going to have a lot more tech jobs here. Um, we want more Indigenous people in the technology sector. What kinds of things can Indigenous people do to get ready for those opportunities, or what kind of programs are out there um, that they can take advantage of so that they're ready when those jobs are are there for them? Yeah, uh, it's a great question because it, it is happening now, and um, the the one the one thing with without connectivity, um, you know, it's worth mentioning that um, you know without connectivity, a, a lot of uh, First Nations and individuals living in First Nations communities, especially in northern BC, are those. Um, not as well connected um, opportunities in the tech sector um, often does uh, mean in British Columbia at the moment that you're um, needing to move to an urban center where there is an established um, tech sector or you know the types of jobs um, that uh, utilize technology more so certainly Vancouver is British Columbia's technology sector but uh, you know, it warrants mentioning that um, the Technology Council has every intention to ensure that um, Indigenous people, uh, whether living in in their First Nations community or outside, will be able to access programs. Um, and that's why we're so passionate about um, the connectivity piece. At the moment, um, it's all about getting your hands on uh, your own hardware. So, you know, having your own laptop and having access to the internet and being able to explore and see um, what you're interested in. 
you know, I think that what we're trying to build is an ecosystem. So, you know, companies like Anamiki and people like you and, uh, you know, Indigenous people across BC and Canada um, who are playing a role in using technology and showing what the power um, of Indigenous people utilizing these tools uh, can be. I mean, that that's really... Um, I think that that's really been a meaningful um, connector. Uh, but, you know, there, there's all kinds of programs um, available to get involved in. I mean, of course, we're trying to build um, Bridging to Technology uh, and other programs that are um, designed to um, really uh, leverage and, um, you know, encourage uh, you know, the, the talent um, and the ways of knowing and seeing and being that Indigenous people bring um, to, to everything and, and to see what that looks like in a technology and innovation field. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think today the most important thing is to uh, find your way to um, just getting in front of a computer and getting interested. And, uh, you know, certainly what we're trying to do is um, build awareness about the types of jobs um, that are going to be available. Um, you know, these are really exciting careers. Tech careers are, um, you know, really interesting and they're often really entrepreneurial as well. So, I mean, um, no matter where you are or what your background is, um, you know, if you have a great idea and you have um, the skills and a, a network, you can really build anything in an online environment and really shape the world. Um, so it's all about just being interested, getting tapped into the right network, and um, you know just to keep to keep moving. Right. So um, bridging to to technology, obviously, Animiki is um, really supportive of the program. Jeff's been a student mentor. We've provided bursaries um, for youth going through the program, and we actually hired Lydia Prince, one of the first uh, graduates, who I'm going to talk about or talk with a little bit later. Um, so we believe in the program and we want to see it grow, but could you give kind of an overview to the listeners of what Bridging to Technology is and maybe what your goals for the program are? Yeah, so Bridging to Technology comes from the Technology Council's um, long history of doing in-community training. So uh, over the years, we've had you know anywhere between you know six to ten mobile labs traveling around to First Nations communities. Um, you know, spending anywhere between one week and four weeks um, doing digital skills development training, introduction to technology. Uh, we were doing some GIS. Um, work along the way and um, doing some uh, office um, office skills development as well and you know what we learned was that um, the most important thing that that we could do uh, would be to provide participants with um, a ladder to the next step so as we were going around to communities we were hearing more and more you know well what do I do if I want to take what do, what do I do if I want to take more um, digital skills um, programming? Where do I go? And at that time, uh, you know, we were one of the only organizations um, doing this type of training, and we we were finding it very difficult as a small not-for-profit to, um, you know, visit all 203 nations on a regular on a regular basis. Um, so we stepped back and we thought about, you know, really 
what's the value to First Nations communities um, in digital skills development training. And um, what we decided was to build this Bridging to Technology initiative that um, would pull in um, a huge number of partners, um, government partners, academic partners, and partners from industry um, to all play a role to ensure that Indigenous people um, have uh, some exposure to um, the tech and innovation sector um, and are given opportunities right from the very beginning of um, expressing interest um, that they are well facilitated from, from that step to exploring where their skill set and their interests might lie. Um, we have a certificate program that's 12 weeks long um, where they can explore six uh, different career options in technology. Uh, these are the six that we see the most job opportunities in over the next 10 years. Um, and they're also, uh, in a couple of cases, they're also the ones the Technology Council has been doing for a number of years. Um, so we've got great material and great instructors and great resources around them. So over the 12 weeks, participants have the opportunity um, to really get uh, a great education in technology and innovation and get a sense of where they feel um, most passionate and compelled. And, you know, if they choose, uh, for example, to be in coding, as Lydia did, um, you know, we can give that deeper, we can make that connection to partners like Lighthouse Labs where they can get that uh, industry uh, standard deeper level of education um, and then from there we've set it up so that um, they'll have an opportunity to also do internships um, with some of BC's um, leading technology companies as well as um, some smaller ones as well and also with some entrepreneurs in the tech sector um, so our graduates will have the opportunity to um, really pick the path that's right for them um, and if they decide that that's not the way that they want to go and actually they want to do GIS or something like that, um, you know, they're always free to come back to the Bridging to Technology program to uh, redirect. Or if they want to go back to school, um, we're trying to, we're just in the midst of formalizing partnership agreements with a number of different post-secondary institutions so that um, our Bridging to Technology graduates, if they choose to go do a, a computer science degree or something like that, we can facilitate um, their movement uh, there as well. Uh, if they want to work back in their community as an entrepreneur, we're making sure that um, we've established relationships with the Accelerator Network, um, the ASETs around the province, and as well the Friendship Centers. So the idea is that we're, we're all networked together to support Indigenous people in in participating in the tech sector or becoming entrepreneurs back home. And how many participants can actually go through the Bridging to Technology program? How large is it overall? Yeah, so we're just working through um, our training schedule at the moment. Um, we've, we've had some good news that we have um, three funding agencies that are wanting to invest uh, in this initiative. And so uh, working through the training schedule with each of them, um, we should know kind of numbers, uh, the seats that are going to be available over the next five years. Um, but what it looks like uh, so far is that we're going to be running 
um, at least four certificate programs per year. Um, we're looking at offering Bridging to Technology online for individuals who can't be in those locations um, but do have the internet connection from home to participate. So we're in the development of that as well. Um, and in, in the long term, it looks like it should be somewhere over um, 1,200 people we're looking for um, to participate in this project over the next five years. So as you know, our youth are often, you know, in some ways steered towards certificate programs and trade programs, sometimes right out of high school. Um, we've noticed that there's often a lot of pressure just to get some training and get a job, and not a lot of emphasis put on exploring your interests or examining what you want out of your career. Um, do you have advice for youth who are either in a career now that they aren't passionate about or maybe who haven't found their path yet but think they might be interested in exploring technology? How would you encourage them to think about a technology-based career? Yeah, I, I can understand that as well. That's um, I grew up in that situation as well. I sort of had three jobs and was working at lots of different coffee shops and, you know, trying to figure out how to kind of pay the rent and pursue something um, that I, I thought was going to be interesting and rewarding and more long term. And I do I think that's that's a really difficult reality, especially for young people, um, especially in B.C., um, what I would say is, um, you know, the, the technology sector, um, I really believe, is the future. It has some of the most um, exciting uh, careers possible in, in the province, in the world. Um, it's a place of creativity. And, and um, you know, the reason I'm doing this work and that the Technology Council is committed to this is because it is so absolutely critical that Indigenous youth especially um, are having their voices uh, heard here and that they are shaping the future um, online and in technology and innovation at large. And so um, I would say anyone who is interested but not sure, I, it might take a bit of a leap of faith, do research online, connect with people at the Technology Council um, or in organizations like Anamiki and ask questions and figure out how you can get involved and just stay connected. Because if not, if not today, then you know maybe somewhere down the road, <clears throat> but absolutely, um, this is a growing sector and getting in right now is the perfect time. There's going to be space for, for you um, and, you know, certainly through the Bridging to Technology program, um, you know, we're seeing so much interest from the industry. People want to hire Indigenous people, especially Indigenous youth. Um, we just need to get, you know, we just need to get people handing in their resumes. You know, that's it. The jobs are there. So, you know, it, it might seem like a, like a bit of a risk, but um, it's all about hard work, the tech sector. You know, um, you don't need a, you don't necessarily need a master's degree or a PhD to get involved. Um, you know, you need, to, you need to be diligent and you need to be passionate and, um, you know, and, and you just need to be ready to do the work. But, um, you know, it's well worth it. It's, I think, uh, I think it, it's a great opportunity for, for every young person. You're listening to Enemiki's Indigenous Innovators Podcast. This podcast is produced by Dakota Lightning and myself, Jordan Rennick, and it's edited by Janet Antone. To find more in the Indigenous Innovators series, you can head to indigenousinnovators.ca or find it at enemiki.com slash blog. 
And don't forget to subscribe to Indigenous Innovators on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. So as promised, I'm being joined now by Lydia Prince, Animiki's newest design intern. Lydia is Cree and Deketh and was one of the first students to go through the Bridging to Technology program. Welcome to Indigenous Innovators, Lydia. Thanks for having me. So before joining the Animiki team as a summer intern, you were a student in the Bridging to Technology program. And before Bridging to Technology, you were a freelance designer. Um, Why did you want to work as a designer and how did you get into that field after high school? Uh, Right after high school, I went straight into uh, the Bachelor of Design program at uh, the Alberta College of Art and Design. So I learned about graphic design, illustration, and animation. So yeah, I just went right into it. Mm -hmm. And did you have like a big connection to art in high school? Why did you think you wanted to go to to design school in the first place? Um, Yeah, my father and mother have always been really supportive of my art. And I found that it was just a natural talent. Um, Yeah, so. Cool. Awesome. Um, And can you tell me how you learned about FNTC's uh, Bridging to Technology program and maybe why you wanted to get into it or or what you weren't getting as being a a freelance designer? Uh, Well, I heard about the program uh, through my Twitter feed. I actually think I was one of the first people to see the announcement and I immediately contacted uh, the FNTC. Um, At that point, they actually hadn't... um, Got, gotten started with the program so <laughs> I was the first person to contact them um, and I've I've been in contact with them since you know my first email I sent to them um, uh, I've seen them you know develop the program um, of course I was the one always on the side bugging them about you know when is <laughs> when is the program going to start when can I start <laughs> so yeah and so moving more specifically into the program itself, um, can you tell our audience a bit what it was like, how it was structured, and, and how it was to go through it? Um, it was a really intense program. Um, so I basically went through the Lighthouse Labs web development boot camp, which is the... I went through the web development stream, so I basically took that program And the tech council was, you know, in the background, making sure that I was um, doing okay through the program. Um, And I basically went from learning to do a really, well, I started off with uh, knowing how to do a really crude HTML and CSS website and I eventually learned how to create like a full-fledged app from front to back. And um, how have you used those skills since you've graduated? I know you started working with us but what kinds of things have you been working on maybe outside of Animiki? Um, I've really just been building on what I've learned. I've been really trying to um, explore each concept that I learned in the program. because you're only given really a couple hours to learn the, the concept, um, which isn't really enough time. So it's really afterwards that you have to spend the more time to actually 
um, I guess, solidify that knowledge. Right. And you've been working with um, language apps. Can you talk a bit about that? Uh, yeah, that was me and my uh, classmate Gabe created a language app for our final project. So that was really all on our own. We didn't really have much help um, other than some mentor help. Um, yeah, it's sort of our baby. Um, we saw a need for it, um, and we created it. And it was really cool just to be able to actually do it yourself and um, create something from scratch. Awesome. And are you still working on it? Yes. In between my full-time job and all my other little projects I have on the side. Yeah. So did the Bridging to Technology program help you think about your career path differently at all? Oh yeah, for sure. It um, it opened up a new path for me. Um, before the Bridging to Tech program, I was actually in administration. So um, one of the reasons why I wanted to take the program because I wasn't, I felt that I wasn't supposed to be in administration, um, you know, being a creative person, you know, I have this bachelor in design, you know, what am I doing in the office? So, yeah. Cool. And do you have an idea of, of where you'd like to take your career moving forward? I think I'm in a really good direction right now. Um, I'm really loving what I'm doing with Anamiki. Um, this is the first job I've had where I wasn't counting down the clock to leave at the end of the day yeah <laughs> I just want to say for the record that we didn't tell her to say that <laughs> no that's awesome um, yeah we've been really happy to have you on the team and it's great to work with bridging to technology grads um, how would you like to see the program grow as you know one of its first alumni where would you like to see it move um, well I'd really like to see um, a lot more support through the program um not that the tech council didn't do that like they were amazing when i was going through the program it's just that um there wasn't i guess maybe i should say maybe have more time to actually learn the concepts because um when you're going through the lighthouse labs um boot camp and they call it a boot camp for that reason um you know you're throwing all this information at you and it really takes a toll on you mentally and physically so having that support was really really important awesome so is there anything else you want to say you know about the program or your experience working with the fntc um it's been great. Um, I know I wouldn't say that when I was in the program, <laughs> just because it was really intense. Um, but you know, afterwards, I'm I've started a new career path, and you know, it's all been great. Getting to hang out with the tech council every day is really really fun. <laughs> so yeah. All right. Thanks, Lydia, and thanks for uh, sharing your perspective. I'm sure a lot of youth who are listening who might want to get into technology um, will use your path as a guide. For sure, yeah. Thanks. Thank you. So that's all we have for today. Thanks for listening, everyone. Um, I hope you got something out of my conversations with Denise and Lydia. If you like the series and you want to find past episodes, you can head to indigenousinnovators.ca or follow along with the series on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts. If you want to learn more about FNTC, you can head to their website at technologycouncil.ca. 
Again, this has been Jordan Rennick with Enemy Keys Indigenous Innovators. Marcin Miigwech, thanks everyone for listening.